You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm David Grubbs. I'm going to be your host this week. I'm an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. With me this week is Nathan Gilmore, associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you, sir? I am doing pretty well. My uh, midterm grades were due this morning because we started so early this school year, mm. and I am loopy. I mean, I have both all three classes that I taught today, I was wandering off on tangents and all kinds of groovy things, so I have no idea what's going to come out of my mouth as we talk. <laughs> well, hope, hopefully good stuff, you know, because <laughs> of Spretzatura and so forth. Yes. Well, not with us today is Michael Farmer. Well, today we're bringing up something that uh, actually is comes from, from way in the way back. I can't even remember when, uh, when we first uh, did the Greek tragedy triptych, 2010, something like that. I don't remember. But before we get into our topic today, which is the the Sophocles play Oedipus at Colonus, is there any news from around the network that we want to pitch? I know uh, a lot of our shows have dropped episodes uh, within the last week or so. Yes, indeed. The uh, Christian Feminist Podcast has, uh, by the time you hear this episode, we'll have a pair of episodes one on uh, racial reconciliation and another on the Netflix series, The Crown. I'm looking forward to listening to both of those. Uh, trying to think other shows. Uh, the Sectarian Review is always putting new stuff out. They've got a recent episode on uh, censorship within the evangelical world that's pretty interesting. Uh, the triumphant return of the Book of Nature happened Yay. since we recorded last. Uh, so you can listen to them on the conflict hypothesis in other words the version of the history of science in which there is a conflict between science and religion and why perhaps we should regard that as a less than helpful hypothesis um trying to think are there any other shows in our network that are dropping stuff oh you did a profiles interview grubs what i did tell, tell us about that that was with a new testament scholar named james pennington his book is called the Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. He's he's looking at Matthew five six and seven through the lens of Greek virtue ethics and uh, Hebrew wisdom literature, and kind of trying to trying to take the Sermon on the Mount in a in a, a slightly different direction than it's been um, historically taken by the the very Lutheran influenced um, mm-hmm. Reformation. Um, nothing nothing against. Luther or, or Lutherans, right? Captain Thin. Um. <laughs> no, I I still remember my seminary professor Fred Norris. He said we need to entertain the possibility that Jesus didn't preach the Sermon on the Mount just to make you feel like crap. 
<laughs> that, that, yeah. Well, I, I, I don't want to steal Pennington's thunder, but, but you, you could go into that episode with that quote and, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so it was good times. Good, good. Well, back to, back to the day's task. We are looking at the final play of the prolific Greek tragedian Sophocles. But before we dive into the, the specifics of the play and of the larger Theban sequence in general, what do we? What can we? You tell us, Nathan, to catch us up on who Sophocles is and why he's important to the history of drama. Well, first of all, Sophocles is one of our pair of phenomenally old men from the ancient world. The other being Socrates. Uh, we often think rightly that hard labor in the fields tended to cut people's lives short, and this is true. But those who didn't work in the fields, like Sophocles and Socrates. Uh, really did live to ripe old ages. Socrates, of course, was executed at age 70. And Sophocles, depending on which account you read, lived to 90 or 91. So a phenomenally old man. And that means that he was, at the same time, someone who lived through the Peloponnesian War and also was a veteran of the Persian War. And there's not too many instances of that among the Greeks. He was a general in the Athenian army, as well as being a playwright. Uh, And... I only know this, uh, you know, from talking to, oh goodness, I've forgotten his name, but the gentleman I, I uh, interviewed about Theater of War, the uh, the dramatic company that does, uh, Brian Dorries is his name, there mm, we go. Cool. Um, but he said that on the tomb of Sophocles is not written uh, writer or philosopher or poet, but stratego, general. Uh, so he's definitely a military man, and these plays that we call the Theban trilogy, uh, again, just reading here and there, I've picked up that they are probably not even originally from the same trilogy. The Theban war was a massively popular subject matter, uh, for Athenian tragedy. I mean, Aeschylus has seven against Thebes. Of course, Sophocles has the, uh, Oedipus and Oedipus Rex, Oedipus at Colonus and Antigone, uh, and then, I mean, you even get some references to it, for instance, in Euripides' play Medea, uh, because the father of Theseus is a character in that one. Uh, so, I mean, you know, just a, a massively interesting city for those Athenians was Thebes. Let's see here. As far as, you know, his importance in intellectual history, I mean, he seems to be Aristotle's go-to tragedy guy when he writes his poetics. Uh, He talks about how Euripides can be a little bit squirrely, and Aeschylus was still kind of refining the trade. Mm -hmm. But when you want to see a tragedy that really does tragedy well, you want to look at Sophocles. So that's kind of the uh, shotgun, not much sleep version of the life of Sophocles. What else would you add, David? Not much, except go and listen to the Sophocles episode of our Greek tragedy triptych. We, We delve a good bit more into... Uh, the history of Greek drama and the relationships between uh, Aeschylus, Sophocles, Sophocles, and Euripides in those episodes. Very good. So this cool. is this is sort of a debt that uh, I, I feel like we incurred back then because uh, we covered we covered Oedipus the King and we covered Antigone and we didn't mm-hmm. cover the third Sophocles play, uh, which is. Uh, 
narratively speaking, technically between those two, even yes. if it was one that he didn't write until decades later. Right, right. And when you live to 91, you can write plays decades later. <laughs> yes. So, we probably... And I'll, I'll go ahead and note that, I mean, some yeah. of his back, back catalog mm-hmm. is also just some phenomenal stuff. I mean, his Ajax, or Ias, if you want to say it, with Erasmian Greek, is one of the only ancient plays with an onstage suicide. Um, and, I mean, it's a haunting play for that reason and for others. Uh, his play, Philoctetes is just a wonderful meditation on loyalty and the way that we treat our friends when they stop being useful. Uh, so, I mean, he, like all of his stuff, I mean, as you would expect for someone who has traveled through the centuries with the reputation that Sophocles had, is just really, really good drama. So as we approach Oedipus at Colonus, which is in plot-wise in between Oedipus the King and Antigone, we ought to probably say something about where it fits in that longer plot. How did Oedipus the King, the hero of Thebes, come to be the blind wanderer that we find in this play? Yeah, so first of all, Oedipus is cursed as a child by the uh, oracle at Delphi that he's going to slay his father, marry his mother, and bear children from the resulting union. So his parent, what now? Yeah, ooh is right. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, his parents are faced with the first of many, many ethical dilemmas. Uh, What do we do about this? We have a duty to our child, but we also don't want to offend the gods by entering into such an incestuous union, not to mention letting a patricide happen. So they attempt infanticide uh, by having, you know, a member of their court take the child out into the wilderness, pin his ankles together, which I'm not sure why you've got to do that with an exposed infant, but they do it anyway, uh, and leaving him in the wilderness. A shepherd, in a fascinating moment in Oedipus Tyrannus, says that he was going to leave the child because it wasn't any of his business, but his compassion overwhelmed his reason, and he took the child in. So, you know, if you are ever told that Oedipus Tyrannus is a simple story of fate and how it rolls out, realize that if this man's compassion had not risen, or if his sense that this is none of his business hadn't given way to his compassion, Oedipus wouldn't have come to return to Thebes. But that's that's another conversation for another day. Uh, so Oedipus grows up, hears about the prophecy himself, thinks that the family that adopted him in Corinth is the father and mother that he's going to slay and marry. So he leaves as quickly as he can. Is it Corinth, David? It just occurred to me. I'm not sure if that's the right city. Yeah, it's Corinth. It's Corinth. All right, very good. He goes and he sets off down the road. He ends up outside of Thebes, uh, where, and we'll talk about some of the uh, oddities of, you know, continuity here. Uh, either in a rage or in an act of self-defense, depending on which play you're reading and which character's talking. Uh, He slays a stranger and also his uh, entourage, and then enters into the city, uh, solves the riddle of the Sphinx that had been plaguing the city, and because he is the savior of the city, also becomes its king, and, you know, part of being king apparently is marrying the queen, so he does. 
Uh, you know, she is an older lady. Apparently, he still finds her hot. You know, she is a lonely recent widow. And she says, hey, you know, this younger man kind of reminds me of my late husband. Uh, and so they marry and they have daughters and sons. And then it is revealed through, you know, some stuff that we talked about in that episode that, in fact, uh, the prophecy has come true. Uh, Oedipus, in a moment of existential terror, realizing the prophecy has come true, he's committed not only incest but also patricide, blinds himself and threatens to exile himself, although they tell him they're going to keep him in town, you know, but obviously remove him from power. Uh, and then if you take Oedipus at Colonus as our sort of central text, years pass, and because of some various circumstances, he is in fact exiled. He wanders the world with his daughter Antigone, and in the meantime, uh, his two sons, well, one of them, you know, inherits the throne, the other one decides that he is going to usurp the throne, and so they battle each other. Uh, there's a great war that, you know, of course, Aeschylus had dealt with in Seven Against Thebes. Uh, and, you know, as we enter into this one, news is starting to spread to the countryside, including to the shrine of colonists outside of Athens, that this civil war in Thebes has gone on. So once again, David, I and listeners, I apologize. I'm kind of in shotgun mode today. What gaps would you fill in there? That that handles it nicely. Um, just just <laughs> pointing out that, uh, yeah, Oedipus the king ends with him announcing his intention to exile himself. Um, you know, if if I had just read that play by itself, I would have I would have assumed that that was what was happening. Um, ah, fair enough. Okay. Yeah, when when you get to Oedipus at Colonus, um something something different has happened um uh, so one of the the uh, things that i was reading suggested that sophocles was actually trying to uh iron out some of the discrepancies um mm -hmm. kind of uh retconning it as it were yeah yeah um kind of, kind of like the infamous uh eight years later at the beginning of spider-man homecoming kind of yeah um <laughs> so uh, yeah, so I, that that would be that would be the only the only thing that I would point out that some some of these links are are a little bit creaky. Um, very clearly, the end of this play is meant to be setting up the beginning of Antigone, and yet yes. there's an awful yeah. lot of stuff at the beginning of Antigone that doesn't feel like um, Oedipus at Colonus came earlier. Um, right, right. Ismene and Antigone don't really treat Creon as the old man who tried to take them as political prisoners for mm -hmm. leverage. Yeah, you'd think that would come up. <laughs> also, they talk as if they have been in Thebes this whole time when the end of Oedipus at Colonus um, seems to present the, uh, the war between um, Thebes and Argos and the coming duel between Polynesus and Antiochus as if that's tomorrow. And, yeah. and Antigone's like, we got to get there fast to stop it. Um, Antigone begins as if, as if they had just been in the city the whole time watching helplessly. Right. Um, but part of that dear listeners is the fact that he wrote Antigone, um, 
much, much, much earlier in his career. Antigone was actually the first one that he wrote, and mm-hmm. he followed it up, uh, I think something like 15 years later, with Oedipus the King, and then decades later, he plugs in this kind of middle chapter. Right. So, yeah. One of the topics brought up early in the play is that of family roles. So what status ought a father to have in this story? And what are the expected roles of a son and daughter? And how is Oedipus's suffering deepened by the fact that his family is just so disordered? Yeah, the disorder begins well before uh, Ismene and... Antigone are born, and in fact, it has to do with the fact that they were born. Uh, You know, one of the terrors in Oedipus Tyrannus uh, that, you know, gets gets played again and again in Oedipus Colonus uh, is the fact that Oedipus is brother and father to his daughters, who are also his sisters. Uh, He is husband and son to his mother and wife. Uh, And, you know, this is one of the realities that, you know, I, I won't say I enjoy teaching to undergrads because, I mean, it's always vaguely creepy, but, you know, the idea that, you know, incest is this sort of universal prohibition. I mean, just about every culture you come to, um, you know, and, and they always want to go to genetics. And I say, okay, you know, Gregor Mendel isn't going to come along for another 2,300 years after Sophocles what reason would Sophocles have to be terrified by this? And what it comes down to is this mixture of roles. Uh, The relationship between any two people um, can be complex to be sure, but the main framework around which that relationship develops should have one main connection, father to child, husband to wife, so on and so forth. The fact that these folks are doubling up on that means that, you know, not only in their minds is it something that is more complex, but it is something that is unholy and something that is cosmically disordered, to use the language of your question, David. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that plays out, first of all, in the fact that when Oedipus, you know, discovers the curse, uh, one of the first things to happen is that Jocasta, his mother and also his wife, uh, slays herself. And when we get to this play, his sons, who are also his brothers, are not acting like family, but they're acting like rival factions. They are battling each other. They are not helping Oedipus in his exile, but they are plotting to secure their own power. Uh, His daughter is Mani, who is also his sister. Um, You know, she is out of the picture for a very, very long time and only shows up to tell him about this struggle that's going on in Thebes or about to go on in Thebes. And what's really fascinating and really sad, I I almost said tragic, but that's not a good word to use here. Uh, (laughs) What's really sad about this story is that Antigone, who is his sister because they have the same mother and also his daughter because he is her father really acts in this play as his mother. So, I mean, there is this multi-generational relationship going on between the two Because Oedipus, although he is a man who, you know, is aging, is nonetheless, I mean, based on some of the dialogue, bigger than most of the other characters. He should have some ability to get along in the world, but he has to be led along like a child. 
And so, I mean, you know, all of this disorder really comes from the plurality of relationships where there should be complex but nonetheless unified links between people. Um, am, am I leaving out any of this, you know, non-branching family tree, David? <laughs> I, it, it, it's interesting. I, I, I'm, I'm really interested in the way that you're sketching this out because the the expectation, especially as, as Oedipus phrases it, uh, for him, Antigone and Ismene, he always addresses them as daughter. Yes. He, he always addresses his sons as sons. Mm-hmm. Um, as if he can, by, by fiat, take the strangeness out of their relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, sure. And I mean, there's some precedent for that. And we're going to talk about, you know, some of his other utterances later, David. Mm-hmm. But there's definitely this ancient sense that you also get in a lot of the texts of Genesis, for instance, that the patriarchy of a family, an extended family, has a certain power in his words mm-hmm. uh, that other people in the story don't necessarily have, right? So, I mean, you think of um, Isaac, you know giving the blessing to Yaakov instead of to Esau, mm-hmm. something actually happens there because Yitzhak is the patriarch of the clan in a way that, for instance, you know, if Jacob had said of himself, I am now the head of the clan, it wouldn't have meant anything. But because Yitzhak is the patriarch, it does. Mm-hmm. And likewise here, I think Oedipus is trying to use that patriarchal power and I, I mean that in a different sense than the Christian feminist podcast usually means it, but it's related, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, in ancient literature, patriarchy is an actual, real, I would say, magical power that the patriarch of a clan has. Mm-hmm. The ability of Big Daddy to say the world is. Yes, precisely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and Oedipus is Oedipus is trying to be Big Daddy, except he's trying to be Big Daddy with people whose relationship to him are not quite as as neat. Um, yeah, you can't Big Daddy your way out of being someone's brother. Right. Um, though, you know, his sons are pretty terrible, even if they are brothers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but they are also each other's uncles. Uh <laughs> yeah, we're we're getting into I am my own grandpa territory. Yeah, here. yeah. Except it's not nearly as cute as when Ray Stevens said it. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah. <laughs> well, belonging is important in this play. Mm-hmm. Uh, as it was in ancient Greek society. Sophocles has several threads of belonging in this story. Uh exile, return, hospitality, citizenship, homeland, sojourning. So how does this play explore explore those ideas of belonging and what happens when a stranger becomes a pawn in games of state? Well, before the state's even involved, you have the gods. Mm. Uh, You know, at the very beginning of this play, he stumbles into a shrine of the Eumenides. Oedipus, over the course of the play, reveals that he has been given a prophecy that he is going to die in the shrine of the Furies. And so he knows that this is where he's going to go, or at least that's what he tells everyone. And so all of these machinations that, Mm -hmm. you know, come to pass 
he takes them on as someone who is an object of the prophecy and as the patriarch of clan and as someone who used to be a king and as someone who is a father and as someone who is a brother. Again, all these interlocking relationships and recursive relationships in Oedipus's cases, case, pardon me, I guess cases, why not, uh, are at play here, right? So, I mean, you know, when he is exiled, he is not only a citizen, which would be horrific enough, but he is a king who is exiled. Uh, when he comes to the edge of Athens, he is a stranger to be sure, and therefore the duty of hospitality is on him. But he's also a man who is a patricide and an incest. And so he is a bearer yeah. of curses. And that's why, I mean, when Theseus comes and says, you know, we are going to welcome you in, we're going to protect you, we're going to abide by the law of hospitality, that's an act of genuine moral courage even before Creon shows up. When Creon finally does show up, then all of a sudden mm-hmm. you've got counter curses playing mm-hmm. against each other. So Creon knows that Thebes will be cursed and probably will be cursed to be destroyed in a civil war. Spoiler alert. Uh, if Oedipus's body is not buried within the bounds of Thebes, he right. also knows that there will come a curse on Thebes if he is buried within the bounds of Thebes because he is an incest and a patricide. So he comes up with, you know, a, a good, sensible, and so wonderfully Greek solution. We'll bury him on the border between the two <laughs> and split the difference. Uh, but Oedipus says, no, I mean, you know, you had the opportunity to have me in your city, but you exiled me, so I'm never coming back. And that's where the contest between uh, Theseus and Creon comes in, because Theseus has a duty to the gods to protect the man who is their guest, and Creon (laughs) has a duty to the gods to bring back the body of the king and bury him properly in the land. Oedipus only has one body, although I'm sure all of our Elizabethan literature friends are already writing their emails with the bot, the king has two bodies jokes. That's fine. This is also true. <laughs> and uh, you can't go halfsies. Mm. I'm pretty sure. I, I actually haven't read the manual, but I'm pretty sure you can't do that. Um, and so, I mean, you know, like Sophocles' other tragedies, right. I mean, one of the things that makes Sophocles such a master even among the Athenian <laughs> masters and I mean well, I you have can such only love bury for one of them Aeschylus and for Euripides <laughs> but Sophocles I'm, I'm, I'm with Aristotle here really does this better than the rest he sets up situations <laughs> in which to do what is right is also to do wrong and the characters in the play you have to watch them as they either commit to one of them they are paralyzed by the potential of doing one of the wrongs therefore don't do either of the rights they allow their own fury to destroy the world because you have insulted me and therefore I don't care what happens. I mean, it really is, I mean, despite mm-hmm. the age of the text, it is a wonderfully complex environment in which to do this kind of moral reasoning. So uh, what other kinds of belonging do you think are important here, David? Or what other comments do you have about belonging in general? I just I, I find it extremely interesting the way uh, the the way later um, not not just the 
the struggle between Creon and Theseus over who has possession of Oedipus, but also the ways that Creon um, seizes Oedipus's daughters mm-hmm. and and claims they belong to me because they belong to Thebes, right? Essentially, uh, whereas Oedipus says they're my daughters, they belong with their father. Um, Creon is um, making a move that you know anyone who's read Antigone would be able to anticipate this one, in which he sees the belonging that you bear to uh, the polis to be one that uh, has precedent over the belonging um, you have to family. Mm-hmm. And of course, because this is a prequel, he is perfectly at liberty to map that conflict that works so well onto the current plot. Yes. Yes. Um, in, in, in ways that, uh, uh, are, are, are very are very studied or very pointed um, I, li- I like the way it, 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 it at least I have this impression you can call me on it if, if you think <laughs> it's not warranted but um, I get the impression that Sophocles expects you to have to remember what he did last time <laughs> so that you can spot things um, now I don't know how often his plays would have been performed more than once I don't I don't know how much that was a thing during during that period um surely he's not mem- he's not saying hey remember antigone 40 years ago <laughs> yeah i mean it brings to mind uh you know some of the things that you know george lucas once said in an interview that i watched that uh he intended the star wars movies to be watched one through six which is Utter hogwash if you've seen episode three, Attack of the, <laughs> or Revenge of the Sith. Uh, it's really just one callback after another to the original trilogy. That's right, right. pretty much from start to finish what that movie is. Mm-hmm. It's clearly meant to be the finale of the six movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like you said, I mean, this is a situation where it's entirely plausible that other than, you know, during the Festival of Dionysius, these plays could have been put on in other contexts or, you know, even segments of them performed. Okay. And at the very least, I mean, I can imagine the old teaching the young in a rhetorical education context, some of the speeches from Antigone and from Oedipus Tyrannus in order Uh. to teach rhetorical form uh, so that, you know, when the younger generation sees Oedipus at Colonus, it comes across to them as a prequel rather mm. than as a, you know, a completely new thing. Mm. And maybe even textbook in a kind of way. Oh, sure. Say a little bit more about that. Well, I mean, you were, you were just saying if, if the dramatic text had become, uh, in, in some sense, models for learning rhetoric, uh, that, that learning, that, that, that um, Oedipus at Colonus could, would then be building on those texts that liter- that were literally for them the textbooks. Right, right. Um, yeah, I think that's that's pretty well on target. That's interesting. I never huh. Never thought about it that way. So cool. I, I I didn't have a good sense of of how often of, of what role these plays uh had served in the inter intervening time. Mhm. Well, I mean, we do know that, you know, when Aristotle comes along, he can quote Oedipus Oedipus Tyrannus pardon me uh, 
in his investigation of poetics. I mean, mm-hmm. he's a good solid generation after even the very aged Sophocles. So, I mean, we know that mm-hmm. the texts are around. Hmm. Cool. Well, one of the uh, stories that gets told about Oedipus at Colonus is that Sophocles' own sons in his old age were uh, attempted to have him declared incompetent to manage his own affairs. Uh, Cicero tells this story in his his On Old Age. And uh, that in order to demonstrate his soundness of mind to the judges, he quoted bits of Oedipus at Colonus to them. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess asked something on the lines of, you know, could could a crazy man have written that? Surely not. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not that really happened, uh, <laughs> the indignities of old age are all through this play. So what does an elderly Sophocles have to tell us by means of an old Oedipus, an old Theseus, old Crayon, a whole chorus of old Athenians? A lot of old people in this play. What the old men in this play make me think of, David, is the scene early in Plato's Republic where Cephalus is talking to Socrates, and Socrates asks him how old age is, and after a couple dirty jokes, <laughs> Cephalus says that old age is when you start thinking about dikaiosune, justice, morality, righteousness. And in that conversation, what he says is that when you are about to die you realize that you have to set things right in the world because you only got so much time left to do so. And that's kind of what I see going on with these three old kings. So Oedipus has a sense that his place in the world and his memory and his importance to Athens and to Thebes is at danger of being compromised. On the other hand, Theseus uh, tends to think of his own role as his, you know, time to die comes as making sure Athens is in good shape. So he wants to be sure that he doesn't offend the gods by forsaking hospitality. He wants to make sure he doesn't offend the gods by breaking a promise. And then, of course, Creon, Mm -hmm. he has a sense that his duty before he dies is to make sure that the Oedipus thing gets taken care of so that Thebes itself doesn't fall victim to the civil war and to all the ruin that's going to come as a result. Now, when you turn to the Athenian chorus, these old men, I mean, first of all, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of goofy. When they first show up, I mean, they come storming into the grove of the Eumenides and say, you know, someone is in here, they're hunting for this person. I mean, you can just imagine them, you know attempting to bend over and look under things as old men. And then later on, of course, I mean, they try to menace the presumably, you know, of age and prime of their age army of Creon, uh, even though they are themselves old men. So, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's analogous to the old men, I guess, in uh, Lysistrata by Aristophanes. Uh, there's There's a certain humor or, you know, there's something funny going on when old men think that they can pick up young men's weapons and use them. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, but in all of those cases, like I said, I mean, what I think of when I think of old age in this play is a sense of impending responsibility that they're either going to fulfill before they die or they're going to leave unfulfilled before they die. And it really does matter which one of those happens. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, uh, 
I, I didn't prep the uh, Cicero piece. That was originally something Michael was going to talk about. So what else <laughs> is there to say about old age here, David? The 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 ways in which uh, I, I think I, I notice it maybe more with Theseus than with, with anyone else. Uh, the Theseus story that I know best is the young Athenian prince going off to kill a minotaur in Crete. Mm-hmm. You know, rad action hero Theseus. And now this is this is kind of heavier, grayer, serious statesman Theseus. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right. He's not. You know. He's not maverick anymore. He's not. You know. It, it's, it's, it's oh, this... Maverick from Top Gun, not yes. the uh, Mel Gibson movie. Yeah, no, 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 no. He's he's not. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he's not he's not the young gun anymore, or or rather, he's not he's not Maverick anymore. Now he's John McCain. Yeah, there you go, there you go. You know, uh, and just just kind of seeing him, you know, putting the cynics and senator on. Mm-hmm. You know that it's 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 kind of it's to my mind it's a little bit estranging. Maybe not as much as it would be to an Athenian for whom Theseus is uh, a more rounded story, whose whose story um, you know spans all of his life. But mm-hmm. for, but for me, who for whom Theseus is mainly famous for that one adventure in his youth, uh, it's a little jarring to see that he got old and serious. <laughs> right, right. So, I mean, because you mainly know Conan the Barbarian, Governor Schwarzenegger is a little weird for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 kind of like that. But, you know, Oedipus is also living it. You know, mm-hmm. he was famous. He was, he was a big deal. And now he's just an old beggar. And he continually is kind of meditating on, you know, if you people knew who I was, but at the same time, I have to keep the secret of who I am because yeah. mm-hmm. because what I am is not just you know the dignity owed to a former king and hero but also Mhm. Well, we ought to say something about the theology of Oedipus at Colonus and I have a feeling that this, you know, you'll enjoy this. Uh mm-hmm. <laughs> ancient Greek notions of fate and freedom, you know, are raised here the way they were in Oedipus the King, but Sure. We, we talked a lot about that in our other Sophocles <laughs> episode. So I am more interested this time around in the notion of curses. Mm-hmm. Oedipus is constantly hurling curses. <laughs> Especially yes, at Crayon, <laughs> but also at his son. Uh, mm-hmm. He also carries around the pollution of one who is accursed. And yet, he is granted to live in a sacred grove and die with what looks like to me like a divine funeral yes uh, indeed so what can oedipus and sophocles help inform us uh about in terms of ancient notions of what curse is and what it might mean to be redeemed from a curse well first of all uh on on the freedom and fate question i have to say that uh I, I hadn't read this play for about 10 years before I prepped it for this episode. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, humbling to me, I'll put it that way, to realize that all of the uh, wonderful lessons I thought that I had invented for teaching Oedipus Rex 
<laughs> we're actually just cribbed from this play. Because, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm always asking my questions, you know, if he didn't know that he was doing this, is he really responsible for it? And then mm-hmm. I, like I said, read this play for this episode, and I say, oh, so that's actually what Oedipus says. Okay. I... <laughs> yeah. yeah. He says no. <laughs> right, right. But is he um, right, you know? It doesn't oh, sure, seem like sure. Oedipus the king in Oedipus the king doesn't think that Oedipus the king is not responsible. Right, right. Anyway. But on to, on to the curses. Uh, as I said before, one of the fascinating things about this play is the ancient notion of the patriarch's word. Uh, and this comes across, I mean, when Oedipus curses Creon, to be sure, but especially when he curses Polynices. Uh, his son comes to visit him, basically asking for a blessing, and instead Oedipus, in his rage and in his wrath, curses him. And what he does, I mean, Polynices acts like something just happened in the world, uh, which is, you know, something very different from us. I mean, you know, we, we have, you know, proverbial children's rhymes like sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. In this world, the word of the patriarch has a magical force to it. I, I, I keep using that word because they never really explore the mechanism by which this happens, whether there are spirits attached to the curses, whether the gods hear the curses and therefore enforce them, whether there's some kind of you know um, sorceress manipulation of invisible forces. No real explanation of it. It simply assumes that once Oedipus speaks this curse, something has happened in the world, and therefore the fate of Polynices gets sealed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, in my mind, I mean, that is the most fascinating part of this, is simply that curses actually still have some kind of force in the world. They do things, right? Mm-hmm. And it's even more than, you know, something like a, a J.L. Austin talks about with performative speech, because the examples that he always gives are to a large extent, social understandings that are ratified in the speech act. Mm. In this one, no Mm. one has to ratify what Oedipus says, or maybe the gods do, or maybe the Furies do, or maybe some kind of spirit does, but no other human being has to ratify the curse of Oedipus. It simply becomes something in the world. Mm -hmm. What else is going on, David? The... He also bears around with him something that seems like a plague. Yes. Uh, but as a, you know, as one who killed his father and slept with his mother, as one who, you know, kind of broke these ultimate taboos, um, mm-hmm. he's sort of in the position of, uh, I, I, I guess you could you could compare it to uh, the the story of Orestes, who's father Agamemnon is murdered by uh, his his mother's lover uh, Clytemnestra's lover but also uh, she colludes him. um in the Aeschylus play I mean mm-hmm. Clytemnestra herself does the deed well I, I I'm 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 mostly by uh, I, I get m- mine mostly through uh, Homer blames it on a oh okay I had forgotten that okay yeah yeah, it's the. It's All right, the, carry on then. It's carry the, on. It's the opening speech, and may, maybe in my in my own mind, I've uh, I've I've tried to synthesize 
<laughs> the yeah, because I mean, win. honestly, that that the is Odyssey. the great triumphant moment of Clytemnestra in the Agamemnon tragedy by Aeschylus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Agamemnon is dead, and this hand has done him in. Right. Well, uh, Orestes in the Odyssey is celebrated for settling a just this. Mm-hmm. But he's also stuck in the position of having to either avenge his father and kill his mother or leave his father unavenged and spare his mother. And both of those are kind of ultimate things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, so Odysseus is, is in, is in uh, a related bind. He is the one who killed his father and uh, as he, uh, you know, all of the ironic statements that he makes in Oedipus the King about how he will avenge the old king as if the old king had been his own father, and so that he's taking upon mm-hmm. himself the son's duty. Um, by the end of the play, he realizes he actually is the one who killed his father. But if he just kills himself... that's more of an escape than it is to bear the curse mm-hmm. of of the patricide so that uh, part of his decision to embrace blindness and exile is a a recognition of what uh, what his crime costs and that if he just sort of avenged him avenged his father by killing himself uh, that that would actually not actually satisfy justice uh, it would be, it would be too much like justice aborted. Um, so he actually carries around with him, it seems, this this almost infection of disaster. And the Athenians, all these all these old Athenians, before they tried to throw out Crayon, they're trying to throw out Oedipus. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, afraid to step in the sacred grove that he's in. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But it seems as if the 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 forbidding of the grove and the kind of supernatural uh, aura, I guess, that Oedipus has. To me, those those categories keep crossing in kind of interesting ways. Mm-hmm. Oedipus is, himself is kind of like the grove in that having too much to do with him is, is dangerous for mere mortals. Mm-hmm. Um, the the cursed and the sacred seem to be very um, uh, put side just put side by side in this play as opposed to um, opposites. But on the other hand, if you drive him too far away, you also incur the curse. Yeah, because but... I mean that's that's the great anxiety of Creon. Mm-hmm. Because you have the the continued obligation to of of. Uh... I don't know what the the Greek word for it is, but filial piety. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Pietas. Yeah, I was gonna say I know the Latin word, but not the Greek. But you've already hit that one, so <laughs> there must be one. <laughs> and I mean, I, I teach the Euthyphro. I should know this term because it's what they're di- di- disputing in that dialogue. But mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. the Greek word escapes me. So I mean, you know, uh, Alex P. I'm sure is gonna write in and fix me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. The end of this play. Did, yeah. Did Oedipus, did he work off the curse? 
Have the gods forgiven him? Is oh, this gosh. Of grace? I mean, do, do you have any kind of clarity on what what exactly we are to take this as at the end? Because, you know, it specifically says the gods have granted them this, this kind of painless entrance into the afterlife. Um, right. Whereas, but, but, but if I remember right, it's the chorus who says that, and they're not present for it. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, you know, uh, Theseus and <laughs> Oedipus go off alone at the end, and only Theseus comes back. So, I mean, you know, as, as if there wasn't enough ambiguity in the corpus of Sophocles, the very <laughs> last scene, I mean, you know, we get the chorus telling us what they think happened, mm-hmm. but no one was actually there to witness it. Well, there's this messenger who tells a lot of stuff, but even he doesn't directly witness what happens. Right, right. And Theseus is very specifically bound from from speaking it. Yeah. But it's so you know, if you take the messenger's word, then he entered into the earth smoothly. Uh, he was welcomed back by Mother Earth and by the gods. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I mean, to say that this is it's almost like Elijah. Well. I, I was going to say, I mean, you know, to say that it's like the apotheosis of a hero is a little bit squirrely because this is the curse bearer. Right, right. But to say that it is, you know, forgiveness, you know, in the way that the return of Israel from the Babylonian exile is forgiveness would require some forgiving agent, and I'm not sure who that would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, what you get, you know, as as with so much of Sophocles, is a, a big old ambiguity pie. <laughs> nom 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 nom. I mean, I mean, how do you read it, David? Because I mean, I I read it and I thought, okay, I I, it it seems like they're treating him like a hero being divinized, mm-hmm. but I I don't think that's right. Yeah. But I can't think of what else I would say about it. <laughs> I am, uh, I I must say that I was primed mm-hmm. by the introduction of the particular. Uh, translation that uh, that I use um, the David Green translation. Okay. Um, and in his introduction, the way that he the way that he talks about Oedipus at Colonus is that um, is that there's some kind of recognition among the gods of the rightness of Oedipus's argument mm-hmm. in Oedipus at Colonus about his own responsibility and his fate. And that oh, fascinating. And, okay. And that they they reckon he suffered enough. <laughs> okay, so so it is like Isaiah forty. Then you know mm-hmm. the time of your suffering is at an end. Your sentence has been served. Yeah. Comfort, comfort, my Oedipus. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's the way he treats it. But again, that's 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 one reading. And as I think you've rightly pointed out, um the chorus has not always been the most insightful observer of what goes on. Right. And, right. And you know, the very last thing that we see in the play is not, you know, I don't know, the disciples <laughs> of Sophocles gathered on the top of a mountain with some kind of, you know, Greek tragedy angle angel saying, why do you look here for the one who is not? Yeah. Um, but instead Antigone begging to see, Begging to see the body, right? Mm-hmm. And and Theseus just shrugging and saying, "Can't can't do it because then that would compromise Athens." <laughs> yeah. And now 
they rush back. They rush back to Thebes, the end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so again, I mean, you know, what what occurred to me this time that didn't occur to me ten years ago, last time I read it, mm-hmm. is that uh, you know, the messenger and Theseus could be in collusion. You know, mm-hmm. uh, could be that you know, Theseus just dumped the body, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, they're saying, well, you know, the uh, the gods welcomed him, if you know what I mean. <laughs> nudge, nudge, wink, wink, and I think you do. Uh huh. Um, so you I know, don't know. I would be very okay because here, because here's the thing. I mean, think of it from Theseus' perspective. Mm-hmm. And by the way, anyone who loves Athenian tragedy, feel free to write in and just body slam <laughs> me on this because I probably deserve it. But you know, I mean, from his perspective, he's got no guarantee that Creon isn't going to come back with a bigger army. Mm-hmm. So I mean, if he can tell this story that you know the gods welcomed Oedipus and the earth swallowed him up and Yep, uh, no body, so, you know, there's no sense in, uh, you know, trying to leverage us to get the body back. Sorry. I I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if Sophocles is quite that cynical about about this, this the supernatural. Um, I, 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 and Theseus, I mean, that would be just an egregious violation, violation of hospitality. <laughs> It would be, yes, yes. You know, I, 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 yeah. And particularly, I mean, the way Oedipus is basically a walking taboo. You mm-hmm. know, I, I don't, th- I don't, I mean, I can't imagine someone just like knocking him in the head and dumping him in the ditch and, and getting away. Right, without scatheless. being avenged sevenfold. Yeah, basically. Okay. All right, so that theory doesn't work. What do you got? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't really have one. Um, okay. You know, I, I wonder. I wonder what Sophocles was working with here, um, if he had some some kind of tradition that he was relying on. Um, oh no, that I don't know. About, okay. Uh, about what happens to Oedipus next, and he's trying to bridge the gap between uh, the cursed exile and the revered uh, sort of local genius. Um, mm-hmm. cause at least what, what one of the things I've read is that Oedipus was actually regarded as being buried outside Athens and that and that and that fact was um, of local significance in Athens mm-hmm. that it was regarded as a good thing um, and maybe maybe the the ambiguities at the end of the play are a kind of and boogity 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 now he's good okay. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that 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 doesn't uh, it doesn't satisfy. But how? Yeah, satisfactory, I was gonna say. But how satisfactory is is ancient Greek myth rendered into systematic theology? <laughs> right. <laughs> Not very usually, which is something that you know Socrates and Plato complain about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we probably better round this out, man. Sounds but good. Before we go, anything anything else in Oedipus at Colonus you want to pitch? Yeah, one of the things that I found fascinating, again, ha- uh, you know, coming back to this play after a, a good number of years, uh, is just how much Athens is ambiguous 
in this play. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I remembered I remembered it as a lot more rah rah Athens, uh, <laughs> but now paying a bit more attention to it, you know, I mean, there is a certain ah, I don't know. There's a certain painful weight uh, to the fact that you know Theseus, like I said, I mean, only has this militia of old men to defend him against Thebes. And the fact that, you know, in this grove, the men of Athens are terrified to enter in, even though they know they need to remove Oedipus from it. And, you know, there's an ambiguity even to Athens in this play that I didn't remember ten, from 10 years ago. So, hmm. uh, like so much with Sophocles, I mean, the complexity is really what's wonderful. Hmm. What do you got? We focus mostly on Oedipus in our conversation, but... I think Antigone bears watching too. Uh, she's a uh, a constant companion, except for one important part of the play when uh, Crayon attempts to abduct her. But mm. uh, her her character is interesting in all this as the the daughter who, in Oedipus's version of things, the the daughter who is doing what a son should have been doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know and. You know, my my understanding is that when uh, when an ancient Greek uh, referred to a woman as as uh, possessing Andrea, that that was considered a good thing. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, Antig- Antigone is definitely a a brave and um, throwing the quotes around it manly character in a way that's uh, that is a a critique of a lot of the men who are around her. Mm-hmm. I like, I like Antigone. Well, yes, indeed. Uh, that is all we have time for today, dear listeners. Um, thank you for uh, sticking around for our conversation about Oedipus at Colonus. If you have any corrections or comments or interpretations you want to suggest, you can post them on the show notes to this episode at uh, christianhumanist.org or you can email them to this to us at uh, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or post them on our Facebook. And Michael, since... Or not Michael. <laughs> David, since Michael's not here, what are we doing next week? Yes, uh, we are going to be looking at uh, an, orchestral ple- uh, an orchestral piece by um, Olivier Messiaen, uh, the quartet for the end of time or and I'm going to attempt this and we'll see how well it goes Couture pour la fin du temps right on man sweet deal well the Christian Humanist podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist radio network our press liaison is Kristen Philippic our editor our new editor is Ellen Peterson And I am David Grubbs on behalf of the present Nathan Gilmore and the absent Michael Farmer, uh, leaving you with good advice from Martin Luther. Let your sin be strong and let your faith be stronger.